and I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, starting today in verse 18, which is where we left off last time back in on July 14th. I know it's been a few weeks since we were together in Matthew because of Family Bible Week, so you might not remember where we are in the story. We've reached what we called last time Jesus' crucial week, also called Passion Week or Holy Week. This is the week in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus has entered into Jerusalem on Sunday and will be crucified by Friday. It is the most crucial week of Jesus' life and ministry. The whole Gospel of Matthew has been building up to this week. On the Sunday of this week, the crowds were shouting, Hosanna! Because the son of David had come running into town, running, riding into town on a donkey. On the next day, on Monday of the crucial week, the son of David was tossing tables in the, in the temple. Remember this part? He was angrily protesting the profiteering going on in his father's house. And then when the dust settled, he was healing the blind and the lame who came to him for help in the temple. And the children were still shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Can you imagine? All those tables overturned, money turning everywhere, chaos everywhere. And the kids are going, Hosanna to the son of David. In verse 17, it says that Jesus went out of the city to the village of Bethany where he spent the night. So today's stories apparently take place on Tuesday of Jesus' crucial week. Now, before we get into our text for this morning, I need to prepare you for something you're probably going to notice and feel as we get further into this crucial week. It's, it's, a, it's almost a change that's going to come, a change upon Jesus, a change in his message. Jesus is going to start talking a lot about judgment. Now, it's not the first time Jesus has talked about judgment. We've seen it sprinkled here and there throughout the Gospel of Matthew. This isn't a different Jesus. But this side of Jesus is going to be much more prominent as Jesus teaches during this crucial week. And it's, it's not just that he's involved in controversy. He is. There's going to be this power struggle. He's going to be like two bucks hitting antlers. So Jesus is involved in controversy with the Jewish religious leaders. We're going to see that. They're going to be bucking against one another. But it's more than that. Because he never loses his temper. He has a message of coming judgment that sounds and feels and truly is heavy. It's weighty. It's serious. It's, it's grave. There's judgment coming. Obviously, Jesus was just wrecking havoc on the tables and the benches of the money changers yesterday. He started it. What do you think you're doing? In my father's house. There's more of that kind of judgment to come. In fact, the story begins on Tuesday morning with Jesus cursing a fig tree. I know that sounds strange. It is strange. It's different. We haven't seen that in 20 chapters so far. And here in chapter 21, he speaks strongly to this fig tree and it withers let me read it to you and then we'll pray and dig into the details i'm just going to read the first two verses 
Matthew 21, 18 and 19. Early in the morning, as he was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately, the tree withered. Let's pray together. Lord, there's something going on here in this story. We haven't seen anything like this so far from Jesus. But this is Jesus. He is the most compelling person in the universe. He's at the center of our faith. We've been singing about him all morning. Help us to understand him better and understand the message he's trying to send to us. By your Holy Spirit, unlock this passage in our hearts so that we are changed. We pray it in the name of this Jesus. Gentle, riding on a donkey, and yet powerful, tossing tables and withering trees with a word. We pray it in his name. Amen. Do you see what I mean when I read the story? This is a side to Jesus we don't always think about or hear about, but it's who he is. First off, notice that Jesus was hungry. That shows how human Jesus is, right? He's fully human, 100%. He gets hungry, and when you get hungry, you want to eat. He wanted some breakfast from this fig tree. By the way, if you compare notes with the Gospel of Mark, you find that this happened actually over two days, probably Monday to begin with and Tuesday of Jesus' crucial week. Matthew puts all the details together in his story and doesn't divide up the chronology for us. But Jesus wants some fruit from this fig tree, and it doesn't have any fruit. It doesn't give a fig. You were waiting for that one, right? It looked like it was going to have fruit. I mean, at least that early fruit that doesn't uh, taste that good, but it can fill up a hungry tummy. At this time of the year, if the leaves are out, it's supposed to have these tiny little pieces of fruit. Not the full fig tree, the fig fruit that comes later, but these little ones that you pop in your mouth, and if you eat enough of them, it takes away your hunger. Well, the leaves are there, but it's false advertising. It's deceptive. And what I understand from my study this week is that if it has these leaves, but no fruit at this time of the year, then it will not have fruit the rest of the year. It, sh- it looked great. Tantalizing breakfast. Pulled up to the drive-in. Oh no, we don't have any food. Just a hypocritical liar of a tree. Acting like it's bearing fruit, but actually doing no such thing. You get the picture? So, instead of this being Jesus just throwing a fit because he was hangry, I suspect that Jesus is making a point. He's using this tree as an illustration. May you never bear fruit again, and the tree withers. What's it an illustration of? Those seem like harsh words. We'd 
you know, we don't usually see Jesus doing miracles of destruction, do we? Think about the Gospel of Matthew so far. We've been in Matthew since December of 2017. Can you think of even one miracle of destruction that Jesus has done? I can't think of any. All of his miracles have been life and restoration and healing and peace. Even resuscitation back from the dead. But Jesus is capable of miracles of destruction as well. And so when Jesus does a miracle like that, it must be a picture of judgment. This is our sermon title for today, Expecting Fruit. Because Jesus is expecting fruit. And when and where he does not find that expected fruit, there will be consequences. Now, I came up with some alternative titles for this message. Bear with me. One was, where's the fruit? But I thought that was maybe a little too 1980s for most people to get. So I had another one. Show me the fruit. Right? That's this, this uh, millennium, right? Also kind of dated as a cultural reference. Neither of those titles reflect the gravity of what is going on here. Jesus is expecting fruit, and when and where he does not find that expected fruit, there are serious consequences. Before we get to the serious consequences, Jesus takes the story in an unexpected direction. The fruit tree withers, and Jesus uses that first off, not as an illustration of judgment, but an illustration of the power of prayer. Look at verse 20. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. I have three points of application this morning, and here's the first one. Pray in faith. Pray in faith, which would, of course, be exhibiting fruit. If you pray in faith, that's an example of the kind of fruit Jesus expects. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a love-hate relationship with passages like this one. I love that Jesus promises big answers to prayer. I hate that I'm not always sure how literally to take them. If you remember, Jesus said something similar back in chapter 17 about, say to this mountain, jump, and it says, how high, right? Go jump in the lake. Well, we decided back in Matthew 17 that Jesus didn't literally mean that this mountain would get up and get tossed into the sea. By the way, he's either pointing at the Mount of Olives Or maybe at the Temple Mount. Jesus never does a miracle like that. In fact, this is one of his few miracles of destruction. He never says, hey mountain, go jump into the the lake. He never does that. The apostles never do that. I don't think they were supposed to take it literally. 
probably using a figure of speech, like mountain-moving faith, like we talk about. But that word whatever in verse 22 sure sounds like anything. Feels like, when you first read it, like a blank check. Just fill in the blank and ask for that and boom, here it comes. But we know from the rest of the Bible that God doesn't just do whatever we ask in our prayers. We have to pray according to His will. We have to pray with the grain of the universe, with God's wisdom. We have to pray in His name and for the things that He wants. And Paul, when he prays, gets told no. Remember when he he had that thorn in his side, whatever that was? Thorn in the flesh? And he asked three times, I think three major times, Lord, please take it away. And the Lord said, no, I got plans for that thorn. The apostle Peter asks for things and the Lord says, no. Even the Lord Jesus Christ got told no to some of his prayer requests. So this isn't a blank check. It it isn't a magic lamp. And God is not our genie in a bottle. But this is a big promise. Jesus is telling the disciples that they will do bigger things than pronounce judgment. And Jesus is saying that his Father will be answering big prayer requests. We need to not fall into the ditch of explaining away these unblushing promises. Oh, well, Jesus didn't really mean that. We need to stay out of the ditch of presumption, but we also need to stay out of the ditch of unbelief. And we need to pray in faith. What are you praying for these days? What are you asking the Lord to do? Are you praying for some big things? I, I don't mean are you praying for a flashy new car or a cushy new job. I mean are you praying for reconciliation with a personal enemy? Are you praying for healing in our nation? We got problems in this country. Just look at the shootings yesterday. And that's just one thing. Are you praying for the salvation of a lost person? That's a miracle right there. If you pray for a lost person and they get found, that is a bigger miracle than the fig tree withering on the spot. I have a hymn that's posted above my desk that I look at every week. It's by John Newton, the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. This one is called, Thou Art Coming to a King. Here's what verse 2 says. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So we pray in faith. Believing in God's reality, God's power, God's goodness, and God's wisdom. And then whenever we bring these big prayer requests, we say like the Savior, not my will, but your will be done. What are you praying for? What do you need to put on your prayer list? What do you, what do you need to start praying for again? Because you'd given up praying for it. Let's pray big.
I'm ashamed of all the times when I've not trusted God's reality, God's power, God's wisdom, God's goodness enough to go big with my prayers. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. So the chief priests and the elders are not happy with how this week is going. Right? They were really frustrated with Jesus yesterday when everybody was shouting praise at him and when he was disrupting the commerce in the temple. And here he is again today back at the temple and teaching without a license. So they try to put a stop to it. Look at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? What's the question behind the question? This is the Gospel of Matthew, so keep your eye on the ball, right? What is keep your eye on the ball? What's the question in the Gospel of Matthew? Who is Jesus? Their question, in other words, is, who do you think you are, huh? Who do you think you are to come in here and do these things and say these things? By what authority and who gave you this authority? Now, that's actually a good question. In fact, as the leaders of the people, they ought to be asking that question. But they did not want to actually hear the answer. They wanted Jesus to be embarrassed or trapped by the question. But Jesus is neither embarrassed nor trapped by the question. In fact, he says, great question. And he turns it around on them. Turns the tables and right back at them. Verse 24. Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Ready? John's baptism. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? That's a masterful reply, isn't it? Because it contains the answer in the question, doesn't it? I mean, he's talking about John the Baptist. What did John the Baptist mean by his baptism? What did John the Baptist preach when he went around baptizing? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, right? And then he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Remember when he said that? Produce fruit. And what did this baptizer, John, say about Jesus? He said, Matthew 3, 11, and 12, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. These are judgment words, isn't it? aren't they? And he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And the very next thing Jesus, John does is baptize Jesus and all heaven breaks loose. So guys, uh, John's baptism, where'd it come from? Was it from heaven or just from men? So their team kind of huddles up and they decide how to answer that one. They don't like either of the options. Look at verse 25. They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people. For they all hold that John was a prophet. Don't want to get into trouble with them, fraidy cats. So they answered Jesus, 
We don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Which is another masterful answer. Because he's already basically told them, and here he is still in the driver's seat. So, if you're keeping track at home today, on Tuesday it is Jesus 1, leaders 0. Neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. But Jesus will tell them three parables that all answer the question from another direction. Today we're going to get through the first two of these parables. Look at verse 28. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? Now stop there for a second. Jesus is back to storytelling. What are parables? They are stories with a shove, right? Well, there's some shove in these parables. He's got three shoves he's going to give these guys. They all really pack a punch. In this first story, the man with two sons is basically God with two kinds of putative disciples, supposed disciples. The first son is the shocking son. Think about what he says to his dad in this Jewish culture. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. And how does the son answer? I will not. Wow. I mean, that would have just been mind-boggling to the Jews to hear that. That is completely dishonoring, completely disrespecting. It's unheard of. That son is in trouble or he's on the run. He's like the prodigal son, isn't he? A lot like him. He has just insulted his father. But later, it says he has a change of mind. In other words, he repents. He has a change of mind and he actually goes and he does do the work. Now, the second son looks good on paper, right? I mean, he sounds great. He answered, I will, sir. Aye, aye, Captain. Yes, Skipper, you can count on me. I'll get right to that. I'm your man. But then he never shows up for work. What's he like? He's like the fig tree, isn't he? He's got the leaves, but not the figs. He's got the look, but not the fruit. And Jesus expects the fruit. So he asks him, well, which of those two did what his father wanted? You know, I'm sure the Pharisees wanted to say, well, the second guy looks really good. I mean, the father didn't want all that insult and dishonor and shame. Yes, yes, but which one actually did what the Father asked? Verse 31. The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John, the Baptist, 
We're just talking about him. Remember him? Came to show you the way of righteousness. And you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Here's application point number two. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. For real. Not just for show. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, they all put on a good show. They knew how to get dressed up for church. They said that they were for real, but there was no fruit. They were all leaves and no figs. But the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the meth heads and the child abusers, they heard what John was saying and repented. They turned around. They did the 180. And they believed what John had said about Jesus. And they began to follow him. And their lives were genuinely changed. Church folk like you and me should be worried periodically. We should be worried that we are good because we think we are good. There is a real danger in clean living. There is a real danger in being religious. We have to ask ourselves on a regular basis if we are for real. Paul said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. And the test is, have I repented and believed? Or maybe better, am I repenting and am I believing? Am I on the way of righteousness? From verse 32, the way of righteousness. That way is the same way as we saw in Psalm 1 and Psalm 92 the last two weeks. Am I on that road? Is there fruit, in other words, or only leaves? Am I the first son or the second one? Jesus says, be the first son. Repent and believe. Sadly, these leaders were all about being the second son. And Jesus says that they are in big trouble because he is expecting fruit. Look at verse 33. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, not figs now, but grapes, He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. You can see where this is going. Especially if you know the Old Testament likened Israel to a vineyard. Verse 34. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. He expects fruit. He is rightfully expecting fruit. For these tenants to produce fruit for him from this vineyard. Now, up to this point, the story makes sense. But then it turns bizarre. Verse 35. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. They didn't say, hey, would you give us more time? They started shooting rockets at the people coming to collect the fruit. Then he sent the other servants to him more than the first time and the tenants treated them the same way what is going on here 
Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. They better. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the, rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Oh, they got into that story, didn't they? They were listening and they just jump on it. They got so carried along they didn't even stop to think about who this story was about. Who is this story about? Roughly speaking, as most parables are only roughly speaking, the landowner is God the Father. The vineyard is the kingdom. And the fruit is the expected obedience that would come from true faith in God. Who are all these fruit collectors? The servants that he sent. They're probably the who? Old Testament prophets, right? Yeah, this is like the story of the Old Testament. Told in a parable. Just think about how patient God is. The listeners to this story cannot believe how patient he is in just sending these servants. He sends servants, they get beat up in stone, and he just sends some more. And then he just sends some more, and they get beat up and they get stoned. That means throwing rocks at them, not smoking something. They're hurting. Then these murderous tenants get it into their foolish brains that if they just killed the son, they can keep the produce for themselves. Is that how it works? That's not how it works. But they do it anyway. They kill the son. Says the son. Standing in the temple on Tuesday of that crucial week. You know, all of a sudden it doesn't seem harsh for that fig tree to wither. Because it stands for the justice of God in rightfully expecting fruit and finding none. What will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, yep, yeah. That's exactly what he's going to do. Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Haven't you done your Bible study? Haven't you read Psalm 118? Don't you think that applies here? Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will what? Produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to fulfill the parable and to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. It won't last. It won't even last the week. By the end of this week, the prophetic parable will be enacted And they will throw the son out of the vineyard and they will kill him. Keep your eye on the ball. Who is Jesus? 
He's the sun in the parable. And he's also the stone in the psalm. The stone rejected by the builders, but turns out to be the capstone. The stone that, though once rejected, comes to reject them. If you fall on this stone in unbelief, you'll be broken to pieces. And if this stone falls on you in judgment, you will be crushed. Because the Lord Jesus expects fruit. Third application point and last. Bear fruit. Bear fruit. This means to submit to God's, to Jesus' authority and to live like he says to. This is the answer to their question. By what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Answer, by God's authority. By my own authority. Who gave me this authority? God the Father gave me this authority. Therefore, you and I should submit. Because Jesus is Lord. Now, this is not to say that Jesus expects perfection out of us. Or, that, or, or therefore, we aren't real. He knows what we are. He knows sometimes our fruit is little scraggly things. He knows, that what we, he'll, he knows what we will continue to struggle with. But he does require us to be real. To trust him, to obey him, to repent, to believe, and to change. Jesus expects us to be different from the world and different from how we used to be. And he does not appreciate it when we ignore him and his commands, especially when we claim to believe and follow him and then don't show up. In what areas of your life do you need to bear fruit? Remember, you can only bear fruit by faith, by being vitally connected to the vine. You can't bear fruit on your own. We need to abide in the vine. But we need to abide in the vine and bear much fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Is that you? This is Jesus once more calling us to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Upside down and inside out. Not like the world and bearing fruit out of faith. In what areas of your life do you need to bear fruit? Jesus is expecting it.